Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everybody. CJ here. Welcome to episode 196 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And boy, do I have a very interesting one today. I'm going to be talking with the director and with the star of the documentary film Agents Unknown, a Vietnam War intelligence officer's story. A recent documentary film which centers around the experiences in Vietnam of a man named John Murphy, who at the time was an Army intelligence officer operating in South Vietnam at the province level. And it is a very interesting and fascinating documentary, and it was very, very interesting to speak to both John Murphy and Michael Reiter, the director of the film. But before I get into my conversation with Mike and John, I've got a very important announcement, a very important thing to tell you listeners about. As many of you may know, I was one of the presenters in the first School Sucks Virtual Summit University, put on by our good friend Brett Vinat of the School Sucks Project. The focus of this summit and all these presentations was the idea of developing better research skills. But it goes beyond that to not just how to acquire information, but how to sort and sift and synthesize together information from different sources, and also gets into how to present things that you've learned to others effectively. And it is really an all-star group that Brett put together that I'm very, very honored to be a part of. And while I'm not super familiar with every single one of the presenters, I am familiar at least a little bit with all of them, and I am very familiar with many of them. And so, aside from yours truly, presenters include Zach Slayback, Steve Patterson, Michael Malice, Kevin Geary, Kevin Cole, Scott Hambrick, Tom Woods, Moritz Burling, Richard Grove, and Jay Dyer. A very, very impressive collection of people with extensive credentials and accomplishments in various types of online media production. A few months ago, there was already one Ideas into Action Summit, and now coming up next month as I record this in March is going to be an encore presentation spread over three consecutive Saturdays, March 7th, 14th, and 21st of 2020. And I have a really cool special offer for all you DHP listeners. If you want to hear my presentation, as well as all those others I mentioned, you can sign up using my coupon code, ProfCJ, P-R-O-F-C-J, all one word. And if you sign up using my coupon code, it'll be a win-win. You will get 30% off the admission price for this online virtual summit. You get 90 bucks off. The price will drop from $299 down to just $209. Furthermore, if you use my coupon code, of course, I will get an affiliate commission. So it's a win-win-win. So if you want to access all of these excellent presentations, and in particular, you're a fan of mine, please, please, please make sure to sign up using my coupon code, P-R-O-F-C-J, all one word. 
And there will be links and information for this in the show notes for this episode. And of course, there will be lots of links and information related to the subject of today's episode, the film Agents Unknown. So again, Agents Unknown is a documentary film about the experiences of a man named John Murphy, who was in Vietnam as an Army intelligence officer in 1967. The film is directed by Michael Ryder. Just a little brief bio on each of these gentlemen before I launch into our conversation. John Murphy grew up in Medford, Massachusetts, outside of Boston, and graduated from Harvard in 64, and got an MA degree from the University of Chicago in 1969. He was a U.S. Army MACV intelligence advisor in the Ninh Thuan province of South Vietnam from 1966 to 1967. He earned the Bronze Star and was an instructor of combat intelligence in 1967 and 1968 at the U.S. Army Intelligence School. He was a professor of political science at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago from 1970 to 2005 and now is Professor Emeritus and was VP University Professionals of Illinois and Illinois Federation of Teachers from 2005 to 2011. And as for the director, Michael Ryder, a native of Chicago, Mike has worked on national and international productions for film and television as a producer, writer, cameraman, and editor. His topics of interest include international politics and history, espionage, true crime, and weird tales. The film Agents Unknown, by the way, can be viewed in a number of different venues, including Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can go watch the whole film immediately after listening to this podcast. And I would urge you to check it out. And again, there will be many links in the show notes to things related to this film. So without any further ado, my conversation with Michael Ryder and John Murphy. Okay, so I'm talking today with the director and the star of the recent documentary, Agents Unknown, about the intelligence side of the Vietnam War. And that would be the director, Mike Ryder, and the star, John Murphy. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So I wanted to start off asking about the origins of the film. How did it begin? Mike, I, th- I think this is your first documentary film that you've made. You know, what made you want to do this project? And John, what made you decide uh, that you wanted to tell your story in this way? I've known John my whole life. He's a family friend. The whole family is the Murphy family is a lifelong family friends. And so I had wanted to um, do a feature documentary project. I had done short docs before. This seems like a, a fascinating topic and an unusual angle on the Vietnam War and a project that was doable in the sense that it didn't require a huge budget 
and was fairly controlled in terms of um, logistics and post-production and shooting it and, and all of that stuff. But beyond the, the technical things, it was really John's story. I, I had uh, grown up hearing, knowing John was a veteran and hearing stories, but I didn't really put it together and see that it was a, an unusual angle on the war. And then, and then once this project got rolling, it was originally going to be more raw with John telling stories. And it became clear immediately that this was a much bigger project and had the potential to tell a larger story, use John's story to tell a larger story with archival and all of the kind of typical documentary elements. And so that's really how it came together on my side. Well, my side of the story is probably like a lot of Vietnam veterans. Uh, When I came back from Vietnam, I didn't talk much about the war, about my experiences, uh, not out of some kind of post-stress thing, but rather just that nobody really, I thought, was particularly interested. Uh, and the war was, at this point, while a, a dominant part of our political thing, it wasn't a story about veterans returning home and about what was happening there as much as it was the political struggle uh, over whether or not we should leave. And... Uh, In my own mind, I was kind of paralyzed by my experience politically, even though my, as it turns out, my life was devoted to teaching about politics. At that time, I, while I sympathized with the opponents of the war, in fact, my, uh, my line used to be, well, I said, the people who opposed the war are people who wanted me to come home. So I was on their side. Um, At the same time, I couldn't quite join things like the Veterans Against the War because I had also worked with the Vietnamese who were, in fact, committed to fighting the war and who I felt a certain obligation to um, as a result of that. But over the years, as I get to the point of this question, I began to talk a little bit more about what had gone on and probably around the time that Mike was uh, growing into a teenager, uh, I maybe had become a lot more uh, loquacious about the the experiences I had, um, maybe from a psychological standpoint, trying to work some of them out, but from another standpoint, trying to understand them politically. Um, I actually had had an experience uh, not long after I returned from Vietnam in taking a course at the University of Chicago, my graduate program, in which uh, I tried to recount some of the experiences I'd had, and that helped me begin to put into some kind of framework uh, what I had experienced uh, and what it might mean in a a broader context. Okay, so let's go ahead and kind of start with your story, John, uh, how you became an army intelligence officer in Vietnam, you know, how, what, what caused you to, to go into the military and how you got into intelligence and what preparation you had, you know, before you actually got uh, out to Vietnam, you know, I, I know in the film, you talk a bit about how, how not great your, uh, your preparation and training and instruction was on all these sorts of things. Could you, could you just sort of recap that part of your story? Well, I, 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 it's good to put that into some kind of broader context because you have to remember that I started 
uh, high school in 1956 and college in 1960. And this was the time of a universal draft, at least particularly for most uh, healthy, able-bodied 18 to 24-year-olds. And so uh, my first probably uh, inkling of interest in the military was when I took some exams for West Point or for the Naval Academy or some of those things as I was looking for a way to uh, spend or, or to pay for my college experience. When I got to um, college, um, I entered Harvard in the September of 1960. Um, we were not at war with any. The Korean War seemed like ancient history. Uh, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was in full flare. And of course, John Kennedy was soon to be elected. And it seemed to me that likely was that I was going to have to spend a couple of years in the military after I graduated from college anyway. So why not do it as a uh, an officer? And so in fact, in 1962, when I signed up for uh, Army ROTC, uh, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, there really was not a serious danger of a war on the front. And in fact, <laughs> particularly enticed by some of the uh, public relations people who were trying to sell myself and some of my uh, fellow students on the idea of signing up, that um, anybody from Harvard would get into the Army intelligence, and we'd undoubtedly wind up in uh, West Germany interviewing people crossing from behind the Iron Curtain we would buy an MGB and tool around Europe for a couple of years, and that would be our service to our country. So in that time and frame, it didn't seem like a bad idea to sign up for Army ROTC. And so in 1964, when I received my degree and my commission, things still weren't uh, particularly harmful. The, the Vietnam War had begun to appear on about page 20 of the New York Times in that there were some advisors, there was some increased hostility, but it was not something that any of us thought was going to be uh, the mainstay of our careers in the Army. Well, my mistake then was to uh, decide that I really didn't want to go into the Army right away, and so I sought a, a student deferment for my service until I had come out to the University of Chicago for graduate work. And <clears throat> figuring that um, a year or two of graduate work would put me in a good place to go into the Army. Well, in the meantime, I happened to fall in love with a woman who was going to be my wife for nearly 50 years. And it seemed to us that if we were going to start a marriage together, we needed to find some way to support uh, a family. And so I decided I ought to get into the Army uh, basically for the paycheck. That was in the fall of 1965. And again, Vietnam was on the horizon, but it had not become what it was to become just a few months later. And when the Army finally decided that I wouldn't be able to enter until May of 1966, it turned out that everybody was going to Vietnam. And so that's where the story begins. 
that we talk about in the film, Agents Unknown. Um, I'm sent to Fort Benning, Georgia for training as a combat infantry officer, then to Fort Holabird, Maryland, which was the the, uh, home of the U.S. Army Intelligence School, and given about six weeks of training on how to fight the Korean War, which was the staple of the course of instruction at uh, Fort Holabird. Within a few weeks, actually months then, I'm on a ship heading for Vietnam, not really knowing what the next step is going to be. So when you get there, I mean, did you have any sort of a clue as to what what to expect or how things were going? Did you have vague impressions? Were you hearing anything from other people in the military or anything like that? Or, or were you just a complete blank slate? Well, it turned out we had actually some good news. Prior to actually shipping out We had been stationed, uh, I say we, our class from the Army Intelligence School, had been stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where we had to check in each day to see if we'd gotten the orders for Vietnam. We all knew we were going to Vietnam, uh, but we didn't know when or how. One day, an officer came in and said, well, he says, We've got a requisition for about 15 or 20 of you guys to go uh, on the next plane out. And we knew that meant the beginning of, since there are about 40 of us, we, it knew, meant we didn't all have to go at the same time. Uh, so rather than drawing straws, a lot of the single officers agreed to go first. Myself, having just been married a month and a half previously, was hoping that there might be some kind of change of plan, something that might <laughs> change. So I agreed to wait for the next uh, the next round. Well, by the time we were getting our orders, uh, the ones that got me to Vietnam, we'd heard several times from the people who'd arrived in Vietnam. And all of them had been assigned to the MACV headquarters at Tonsonut Air Base, what we later came to lovingly refer to as Pentagon East. Um, They were in the great war rooms with the giant maps of Vietnam, plotting the movement of uh, NVA battalions or uh, Viet Cong uh, units. And they said that life was uh, really pretty reasonable. They commuted each day by, it's true, an armored vehicle, Uh, But it was basically a nine-to-five job, and they did a lot of uh, seeing of Saigon in the meantime. Well, that sounded not too bad to those of us who were about to arrive, and so we sort of knew that we were going to be in Saigon and we'd be at the most secure possible position, namely uh, the Pentagon East. Uh, When we arrived in Vietnam, however, we got the bad news. The bad news was that a couple of weeks before we arrived, uh, General McChristian, the uh, general uh, officer in charge of intelligence for uh, the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, MACV, had come through Saigon and noticed all of these second and first lieutenants that were standing around in the headquarters and said, you know, 
we've got too many officers here in Saigon. Let's get people out to the field. And so when we arrived, the first word we heard was that, with great apologies, that we would not be in Saigon. We were growing to something called the field, uh, completely unknown as to what that meant at the time as well. So in that sense, we were totally unprepared for what was to come next, which involved an assignment uh, that no one had been prepared for. Okay, and what was that assignment, and and how did things start to look different to you as as you got on with it? Well, the first thought was that we might be assigned to U.S. military units, uh, the various uh, U.S. Army divisions that were there. But it turned out instead that as young as we were, as inexperienced as we were, the Army in its wisdom had decided that we made appropriate advisors to the Vietnamese. And so we found out that we were going to be assigned to one of the provinces of South Vietnam where there were MACV, Military Assistance Command Vietnam, teams of advisors who worked with the Vietnamese Army uh, to uh, conduct the battles against the the Viet Cong and NVA. Um, Our first uh, question was, well, where in Vietnam were we go- to go? Remember now, there were 44 different provinces in South Vietnam at the time. They were divided up among by the U.S. military into four core areas, I-Corps being the area closest to the demilitarized zone, II-Corps being in the area of the Central Highlands, III-Corps, the area around Saigon, and uh, the middle of the country, and then four corps, which was in the Delta and the other areas. Uh, As a number of us sat around trying to figure out what might be the best possible uh, assignment, we noted that uh, four corps was very hot and very dangerous. I-Corps, where those Marines were going that had been on the ship with us, didn't sound like a pleasant spot. So we agreed on seeking out either two corps or three corps. I was finally assigned to the two corps area. And after a series of uh, flights around the uh, two corps area, wound up on the western coast in an area uh, south of Cameron Bay, the province of Ninchuan, which had as its capital Fan Rang. And so just before Christmas of 1966, I found myself um, meeting about 40 or 50 other personnel who were part of the MACV team number, advisory team number 39, stationed in Fanrang, Ninchuan province in the Tukor area. My assignment there was to act as an advisor to the province intelligence corps. That is to the Vietnamese who were already engaged in the war, many of them for many years. Um, we had a, an S2, as it was called. I should say that the provinces in Vietnam at the time were arranged under military authority. 
so that the province chief was actually a colonel in the Vietnamese army, uh, the Arvin as it's known, and that the various uh, field officers had parallels with responsibilities both administratively and militarily. So my job was to be an advisor, in quotes, to the intelligence officers of that uh, province. And I spent most of my year uh, doing just that, uh, primarily learning from them information that we could pass on to U.S. authorities, and at the same time trying to restructure, uh, in some ways, the way that they operated in a fashion that might make them more efficient. Now, it seems like one of the themes that comes across in the film is of you sort of becoming disillusioned or I don't know if that's quite the right word, but, but starting to starting to realize the corruption uh, of, of some, particularly some of the Vietnamese elements you were working with and the, the bureaucratic insanity and inefficiency and all of the, you know, the cooking of the statistics and everything like that. Can you remember any particular incidents that first started to kind of, you know, trip your trip your senses on on that as far as, as starting to realize that that there's some kind of shady things going on and some you know bureaucratic uh, dysfunction going on and all that? Can you remember any any particular moments that sort of first started to make you think that way? Perhaps it started with uh, what was unusual, certainly for the Americans. Um, if we talk, first of all, about the Vietnamese and their commitment to the war, was the fact that uh, I was told that uh, from 12 to 2 during the day, there would be no communication with the Vietnamese. That was what, what at least we called their siesta time. That was time out from the war, time out from activity, middle of the day, obviously sometimes very hot in South Vietnam, but something that was not exactly uh, something that Americans were, were used to. As for the Army, uh, it certainly did start very early on with the kinds of reports that we had to to file. Um, Some of them made sense. Some of them did not. Uh, The one that we particularly talk about in the uh, film is one that was kind of at the apex of all of the the blunders and one which I relate to uh, issues uh, that go to the heart of what may be going on even today. Uh, just recently, we've had the release of these Afghanistan papers suggesting that the U.S. military had known for some time that our efforts in Afghanistan were going to fail, that there was a, a, a miscommunication or even lying about the progress we were making. Um We had those controversies, of course, uh, not long after I came back from Vietnam when uh, CBS News did a special report on General Westmoreland and accused him of fudging the numbers of uh, Viet Cong and NVA that we faced in South Vietnam. Uh, General Westmoreland, some people may remember, then sued CBS for libel. And we got into this argument about the numbers and whether they were being cooked uh, to make it look more 
uh, doable than otherwise. Uh, my take on that was more from the uh, province level. And the, the story I tell in the film is about how when we tried to submit numbers that we, the Americans, thought were more accurate rather than the lower numbers that the Vietnamese were submitting through their channels, that we were rebuffed over and over again by higher authorities who insisted to the commander of our team that he somehow reconcile our numbers with the Vietnamese numbers. And finally, the colonel called me in and he said to me, uh, Murphy, what do you think this all means? And I said, Colonel, I'm afraid I think they want the Vietnamese numbers. And that's what we sent them. And that's what led to me being able to say to my colleagues in Saigon not too many weeks later, you've got a wonderful map. You've got a beautiful picture of what's going on. You've got numbers from across the country. But the only problem is that I know the numbers I sent you and I know they're wrong. And so the whole thing is probably not particularly useful. Yeah. Have either of you seen the uh, the HBO series from maybe like 15 years ago, The Wire? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I couldn't help but think of The Wire and that whole theme of uh, juking the stats, right? And how <laughs> That's right. Which, which the wire covered in, in law enforcement in Baltimore, but then also in other places, right? Like, um, they, they had the one season where they also, uh, got into the school system and showed how people are juking the stats there, right? Doing things to make the test scores look better. And, you know, um, and, and it just seems to me, and I've seen it myself from the inside in, in education. And I've seen it, you know, studying history and things like the way governments operate and all that sort of thing. Um, and it, it, it just, seems like to some degree uh this is this is inevitable anytime you've got a, a large bureaucratic organization with all of the you know the, the the mixed incentives and the contradictory the conflicts of interest and everyone pursuing their own interest from their perspective and all that that you end up it's not just that bureaucracies are in, are inefficient but that they they do things like manipulating statistics in, in a deceptive way. And it's just sort of baked into the cake. It's, it's not so easy to pin down like that. There's one person. I, I call it, it's in the bureaucratic DNA by now, uh, but the, let, let me just suggest though, the, what is the origin of that? The origin is fear of superior people making judgments about your performance. Um, we had this, uh, if you think about one of the aspects of the one-year commitment in Vietnam, I, first of all, I have to give my best to those men and women who are serving in Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, who go back year after year. We knew that one year and we were done unless we were career military. And um, But the one of the functions of that was that, of course, the let's take it from the standpoint of my uh, my experience at an advisory team, uh, the colonel who's the head of that team comes in to the, uh, the, the new position and immediately reports on what a terrible situation he's facing, all of the problems that were left behind by the previous. 
and over the course of the year, how improvements are being made <laughs> so that by the time he's leaving, you know, things are much better on the road to, uh, to victory, right? Um, and how is that important? Because you've got to tell your commanders you're making progress. And no one gets rewarded for saying the emperor has no clothes. Um, we've seen that more recently in our politics. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that in order to get ahead in the army or in most bureaucratic situations, the naysayers are not going to be rewarded. It's those who somehow find uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's certainly what Westmoreland and others did uh, continuously and what many are doing now in, in the Middle East. Right. Yeah. It also called to mind, aside from the wire, that, that whole theme, um, and just as, as you were describing it there, it also called to mind the film War Machine that uh, with, with the Brad Pitt as basically a slightly fictionalized McChrystal. I don't know if either of you have seen that. It was a, it was a dark comedy, I guess you might call it, sort of a parody, but played up the same idea. Let me suggest one other aspect of it, one that really bothered me. I, had, I worked under uh, a captain and a major who was the, uh, technically the head intelligence advisor for much of my tour there. And intelligence people had a bit of a separate chain of command. We had a, we were part of the 19th or the, the 519th or the 525th military intelligence battalion. And we were attached to these other units in kind of a bureaucratic uh, uh, mess uh, that, uh, that didn't always work. But it meant that he had some resources money-wise to uh, perhaps used for intelligence purposes. Um, our titular leader, the colonel who had headed the advisory team, made use of those resources to make payments to the province chief, ostensibly for intelligence that the province chief would secretly provide to the colonel. Um, we all saw it as a bit of a bribe. Um, my Superior officer, Captain Culp, a wonderful guy, um, made waves about it, uh, challenged the colonel at times that uh, we were not getting information, that it was not appropriate to keep paying the province chief, et cetera. And I am totally convinced that as a result of this, his military career, that is Captain Culp's military career, was short-circuited by that colonel that he was downgraded for a lack of loyalty, lack of participation, whatever you want to call it, whatever he made up about it. It was a result of the resistance which um, he had made to the colonel's misuse of our funds. And so, you know, there's a whole system here that has to be dealt with when you think about it. It's the same thing that goes in the private sector or academia, wherever it might be, but it's just something I want to make sure it's understood that it's a broader problem than just the U.S. military. Um, can you talk a little bit, John, about some of the things, and I could tell in the film that some of them, you know, deeply kind of affected you and troubled you, some of the things you you saw or encountered or heard about that were beyond just, you know, corruption and bureaucratic 
inefficiency and juking of the stats, but things like uh, that, that incident with Agent Orange on that particular mountain or uh, the, the jet fuel pipeline fiasco or um, maybe some of the enhanced interrogation incidents and things like this. Things that, or, or some of the darker aspects of the Phoenix program. Um, wh- what was it like to encounter some of these darker aspects of the Vietnam War, and to to have to figure out, you know, how to how to do your job in that sort of a context? Well, that's a very good question in terms of uh, dealing almost with on a daily basis with some kind of moral complexity, to, to say the least. Um, first, I want to say, though, that the first part of your question uh, brought up to my mind uh, my relationship with the Vietnamese uh, themselves. One of my jobs as advisor was to get out into the uh, villages and hamlets and, at least through my interpreter, find out something about the way in which people lived and worked. And, uh, and of course, you know, children and and um, the like there were a lot of good experiences with them and so part of my job when i dealt with the american military forces was to restrain the tendency for those who are in the uh you know entirely american uh units from disparaging uh the people of vietnam um, we've all heard about the gooks or the slopes or whatever the names were needed. And I understood from the standpoint of psychology that people who were more actively engaged in uh, combat had to find a way to deal with the the requirement to, to kill other people and to somehow um, minimize the humanity of those people. But our job as advisors was to tell the other side of the story, uh, the story of a 20-year veteran of Arvin who I remember talking to and saying to him, you know, the Americans are going to leave. The VC may win. What happens then? He said, I'll go up to the mountains. I'll fight them from there. So there were people that one wanted to to protect or to at least um, – have an idea that that or, or communicate an idea to your fellow Americans that there were people here who did support their efforts who who were appreciative of it and who did have a commitment. The problem was that they were being betrayed by their leaders and so some of the stories that um, you reference uh, well they don't directly involve um those kinds of episodes do are important to me uh, to go to the issue of the darker side. Certainly uh, I think the uh, or ancient orange one is certainly one of the most uh, disturbing to me. Uh, um, people perhaps know now that agent orange orange was used as a defoliant. It was very effective at destroying large areas of uh, crops and made it difficult for um, those areas that were controlled by the Viet Cong or the NVA to uh, uh, to produce food. Um, in our case, we had four different parts of our province. 
and one was in the northern part in a, basically an area of the Central Highlands, an area that we had very uh, little contact with. Um, the background to this is that each day, uh, myself or someone else from uh, the MACV team would be required to fly an aerial reconnaissance around the province. In fact, we kept a, an air pilot, a pilot in the air, uh, pretty much all through the daylight hours, looking for signs of Viet Cong activity or NBA activity and the like. But this area was one that we could seldom get up into because it was mostly covered by clouds. It was higher than the, uh, the, ter the terrain was higher and therefore more difficult to navigate. And so only on occasions were we able to get a look at what those areas looked like. It turns out that they were mainly occupied by the people who came to be known as the Montagnards, the mountain people. They were ethnically different from the Vietnamese. Uh, they were treated uh, as uh, second-class citizens, much the way uh, blacks in America were treated for so many hundreds of years. Uh, they were people who uh, lived by what was called slash-and-burn farming along the side of the mountain. They would clear areas and uh, plant food and then uh, plant products and then uh, harvest them. Well, the uh, colonel who headed our advisory team was again subject to one of the other, I think, uh, key kinds of lessons of, of certain organizations. And that is, if you have a weapon available, you better figure out how to use it. In other words, not driven by the circumstance as much as by the availability of the particular uh, instrument. In this case, he had heard about Agent Orange and about its ability to uh, clear areas. And he decided that we in the 39th advisory team ought to make use of them. I think he got a, a message that they were available, etc. And so he decided that this area in this northern part of our province that was often under clouds would be a perfect area to uh, to defoliate, and we'd see what was going on up there. He always suspected, and, and certainly our intelligence suggested, that if nothing else, this was an area that the Viet Cong or North Vietnamese could use as a, um, a byway point. They could move through the area without being detected. Uh, they were at least not resisted by the Montagnards, although... We had no evidence that the Montagnards, per se, were assisting them. Um, based on that kind of flimsy, we, we got into a debate about whether this was a useful thing to do. And uh, ultimately, uh, those of us who were in the intelligence portion lost the argument, and the colonel um, invited the uh, Agent Orange people into our province. And one morning, these rather haggard-looking uh, senior pilots who flew, I think, C-123s, one of the older two-engine jobs, came in to look at the maps and see where they were going that day. They flew over this mountain yard area, 
they dropped Agent Orange. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, when we could get in to see what the damage had been done, uh, we began to re, uh, receive rifle fire uh, in the aircraft, uh, something that had not happened before. And when we reported that the colonel to the colonel, he, of course, said, see, I told you they were VC. And we, of course, said, well, if you had just dropped all that shit on them, wouldn't you be shooting at any airplane that came over? So that was an example of how and some innocent people probably were victims of this war in ways that uh, it should not have happened. Right. And, and, and I think it would be reasonable to presume that similar incidents to that probably happen all the time in places like Afghanistan, you know, in the present where you've got these, these strange incentives of, Oh, we've got to use this, this particular you know, piece of hardware or this particular. Now I have, I have no experience with it, but it, it often reminds me or think it, it, it occurs to me that the existence of drones has become part of that. That is the fact that we can do it becomes an incentive to do certain things. Um, you know, we used to complain about the, uh, well, I shouldn't say complain, they were obviously useful, but uh, some of us had some concerns about the B-52s in Vietnam, which flew so high that they couldn't even be heard. The first thing that people would know would, would be the bombs dropping on them. And those pilots would return to the Philippines to be with their families at night. Um, there's something about war when you can disassociate from the actual act that has to be of concern, I think. And the drones remind me of that, that you can stay in a safe haven in perhaps in the middle of Colorado and uh, do damage to people thousands of miles away and feel no connection to it. Yeah, I think there's there's something that goes against almost the idea of, of like honor and war as far as that goes or, or fairness or whatever. I mean, even though obviously there's a lot about war that's always unfair and not, not honorable, but something about being completely insulated from even the, the possibility of, of the slightest physical danger, right. Other than, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome or whatever it is that, yeah. And, Oh, that, it's, it's a, a due to, it is a change in our nature of warfare. And uh, if any of you get to see the movie 1917, when you think about where we are today from, from those uh, heroes who went over trenches to face almost certain death, hand to hand, et cetera, you know, it's a much different type of world we're in. Yeah. And I would, I would assume that in our, I mean, I, I've heard individual stories, so so I don't have to assume that similar things are happening in places like Afghanistan, as well as far as blowback, where you know particular groups of people or, or tribes or just people in an area who previously had not been you know anti-American, who had who had been maybe even pro-American or just indifferent or or whatever, but you know, something terrible happens, bomb falls on their area or whatever it is. 
And then suddenly you've created a whole bunch more enemies that previously were not your enemy. Yeah, that was always a great danger. Whenever the uh, uh, American troops moved through an area, or if if mistakes were made by those of us in, in the advisory teams, there were sometimes issues that came up. Uh, again, in the film, I, I tell the story of uh, our association with the South Korean Army, uh, the Republic of Korea, known as the Rocks. They had sent in, you know, remember there was a, an effort by President Johnson to internationalize the American effort uh, to show that there were other countries who were supporting as part of the CETO, the uh, Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. And so we had a, a battalion of, of rocks of Koreans. We had a battalion or a, a group from Australia. Um, and um, they were there partly symbolically, but obviously also looking for the experience of, of fighting. Um, we had an incident with the Koreans. Since those of us on the advisory teams were the main source of contact between other uh, units, pro-American units and the like, and the local Vietnamese, we were called in one day to um, hear a story about an incident with the South Koreans. They had set up a roadblock and an ambush along a trail that led up to a forested area where a number of Vietnamese woodcutters, as part of their daily routine, would go up to cut trees and bring back wood. Now, these areas were technically considered to be free fire zones, VC controlled, whatever you want to call them. But there clearly was an understanding between the local Vietnamese and the Viet Cong uh, that these woodcutters would not be uh, harmed, and, but they were obviously also being cooperative with the with the enemy. Well, this morning, um, the Koreans, uh, based on whatever intelligence they had, they had had no contact with us, um, set up an ambush, and they killed three woodcutters who were on their way up to this area, and we were brought in to help deal with the repercussions of that with the local uh, Vietnamese. Uh, uh, as we discussed, that already there had been promises of reparations of money that would be paid to the families. There were some uh, apologies, etc. cetera. Um, finally, um, I, I said to one of the uh, Korean officers, uh, is there anything else you can think of that might help uh, the situation? He went off and he talked uh, with some of his colleagues. He came back and he asked, would it help if we returned their ears? Uh, that was a problem that we, we faced in sometimes dealing with uh, the intrusion of other forces into our areas as well. So looking back, now you've you've had over over fifty years since you had this experience in Vietnam. Um, have you, during that time, done like research into the larger picture of the war, and and that sort of thing to to kind of put your 
experience of it in into the larger context? Well, I've, at various times I have. The, one of my problems uh, was that my career interests were actually in the area of American government politics. Uh, I wound up being a professor of political science at uh, State University here in Chicago, Northeastern Illinois. And uh, my area of expertise, so-called, was the uh, things like the presidency, the Congress, etc., rather than foreign policy. But over time, I've certainly uh, kept track of some of the debates about the the Vietnam War. Um, I don't think I've changed much from my initial position. Once asked, you know, what uh, what did I think about going to the war? I, I I did not feel I had enough uh, moral evidence that it was uh, against my conscience to go. I did think it was probably a mistake. I had been a student of uh, people like um, Hans Morgenthau and um, uh, Henry Kissinger, actually. Uh, But at the time, I thought that this was not a war that served our national interest Uh, that it was more likely an indigenous civil war. But it did not mean, in my view, that we didn't have the right to come to the aid of a country that was being overtaken by another country. Um, My view on that has not changed a lot, except that the disaster of the war, the, the, the consequences for us, uh, not only militarily, but certainly as a society, I think we're more profound than I would have imagined. And so on, on total, there's no question that it was a horrendous mistake. And unfortunately, one that I see at least parallels with some of the mistakes we're making now in the Middle East. How would you say that your your personal experience sheds kind of new light on the overall bigger picture of the war because it's it's a perspective we don't hear from very much the perspective of a junior intelligence officer what what do you think that adds would you say and and mike you can jump in on this as well if you like um to the the larger picture of the war and how we look at it and understand it well, from my perspective, one of the thing, one of the reasons why I agreed to do the interviews, and by the way, most of the work was certainly Michael's and the and the footage that goes into it, uh, the great research he did around it. Um, but my sense was that the role of the advisors, in particular, had not been covered uh, sufficiently. Not that the the advisors were a major component, necessarily, of the ultimate result, but the advisors were, I thought, on the right track. They combined with civilian employees of USAID, the Agency for International Development, and others that were involved in the so-called pacification or rural development efforts, were people that had some commitment to trying to win the war from the bottom up. And while no one can forsake the uh, 
uh, heroism of the U.S. military, much of it shown in the Ken in the Burns uh, Ken Burns uh, Vietnam series. Uh, no one would would belittle that, but it did seem to me that there was another part of that picture that needed to be uh, covered, and that it might have, as I've said, some implications for what we're trying to do now in the Middle East. Uh, whether that be a conclusion that it's impossible to build a nation that isn't ready for it, or whether it be that we simply need to learn better how to work with people who are seeking to establish a nation and forego some of the military options that are usually adhered to. From my point of view, I found... John's, as I said at the beginning, I I, had, I knew that John was a veteran and I'd heard some of these stories, but I didn't make the connection with the intelligence angle and the larger picture. And then once that started coming into focus, I thought this is, a, this is an, an angle that hasn't really been covered much. There are plenty of Vietnam documentaries, but from a content angle, first of all, I found it fascinating. And I've always had an interest in espionage and stuff like that. And, and once the production started going and we had to raise additional money and stuff. It was a way to, to sell it as well. And still is frankly, that, that it's not an angle that has been done much because intelligence work, I think it's been neglected in documentaries because it's more uh, quote unquote academic maybe. And it's more, it's a mix of, of analysis and, and journalism and detective work and that kind of a thing. And so I think it's, it's less action oriented. And I think producers and networks and so on have, um, have been reluctant to get into it because it requires a bit more on the part of the audience. And while there's still plenty of action in the movie, it's, it's about every getting the information together that leads up to the combat or the operation. I think that that's what drew me to it is just the unusual angle and, and that it was a, a story worth telling about at the bottom, you know, how did you go about getting all the different photos and, and uh, footage clips and everything like that that were used in the film? Sure. So it was um, John provided uh, a large amount of photos and documents and the photos for a, for a, an amateur photographer are absolutely stunning. And, and more so when uh, I, I had a great retoucher shout out to Rich Balzo who uh, retouched the photos and did a staggering job i mean the stuff is just looks fantastic and and um so john provided a lot of the original material and then additionally um we had photos from a doctor henry hamilton who was also uh stationed in fanrang so he provided some stuff and then as far as the footage i was able to find things that had not been used and so there's a there's a nice chunk of shots here and there. Some of the defoliation, since we were talking about that, some of that has never been used. You know, things, little bits here and there that haven't been seen by the public in a in a doc. And then as far as the doc, as the the actual paper documents and intelligence reports and things like that, um, it was a mix of archival sources, um, Texas Tech archives, and um, some. You know, I, I was able to find stuff, whether it's the satellite photos or uh, reconnaissance photos, I should say. Here and there online, you find people who have things or 
access to archives and then you work it out with them and people, you know, it's been, or the national archives, of course, I mean, that goes without saying they provided many documents and the footage. Um, so those kind of sources, I've got some secret sources as well, but I mean, nothing too clandestine, unfortunately. It's, it's not as dramatic as <laughs> me finding the stuff is not the most, uh, cloak and dagger type story. It's mostly just research and reaching out to people. Yeah, as a history guy, I'm always I'm always interested in that sort of nuts and bolts stuff. Whenever you know someone has done a research for a film or a book or what have you, I'm just always interested. Like, oh, where, where'd you go, you know, and how'd you put together all your stuff? Um, I'm I'm sure there were. I'm sure, as is always the case with these things, you probably had ten times as much material as as you were able to put into the film or whatever. Was there anything that that almost made the cut, but didn't quite that, that you even maybe are still kind of like, Oh, that was a really neat story or that was a really neat uh, document or that was a really neat, you know, visual or whatever. Um, anything as far as, as John's stories that, that didn't make the cut or, or anything else. So there's a number of scenes that are, uh, were cut mostly for time. The DVD agents unknown DVD will be coming out this year. And those deleted scenes are going to be on the DVD. I'm also in some of the social media promotion stuff. One of those deleted scenes is out now and it's on YouTube. A lot of it was um, comic relief. So there were a few funny scenes that were cut for time. One of them was a, uh, a venereal disease related story about the air force. I don't, John, you want to tell this one? You're, this is your, uh, <laughs> John can tell it better than I can. Well, this, I think this actually is a story that has some instruction to it about how the military <laughs> operates. As I said earlier, you know, we were often called, called upon to be the uh, go-betweens between the American military and the Vietnamese community. So it turned out that in Phan Rang, there had been built a, a major air base, uh, the Phan Rang Air Base, commanded by a uh, colonel in the U.S. Air Force out of which flew a number of the fighter squadrons that uh, assisted and supported American troops. Um, well, we get a call from the Air Force one day to come out that they had a problem. And the problem was that even though their base was support was surrounded by uh, barbed wire, uh, they had a uh, an infiltration problem. And the infiltration problem was caused by their own people who had been crawling under the barbed wire, both in and out, in order to reach a series of huts that were not too far away, inhabited by some young ladies who seemed to be interested in entertaining, shall we put it. Um, That meant that at night, U.S. Air Force guards were shooting at their own people trying to come back into the base from uh, this area. Wow. And the uh, colonel wanted us to put a stop to it by moving (laughs) these people away. We said, well, no, there's no way that we can, you know, this is sort of capitalism in its uh, (laughs) its, uh, basic form. Um, Well, he said, there's another problem, and that is, of course, venereal disease. And so he said he wanted one of our Vietnamese doctors to come and treat the young women. Uh, We explained to him that this was a province of something like 100,000 people for whom there were two doctors, two Vietnamese doctors. Now, they were supplemented by some volunteer 
American doctors, some Air Force doctors that, that were assigned there as well. Um, but there was no way we were going to allow one of our Vietnamese doctors to spend an afternoon uh, treating these young women when there were all these cases that they had to deal with from the native population. Well, we worked out a deal. Um, since it wouldn't have been appropriate for Air Force doctors to treat these Vietnamese women, the colonel suggesting what a scandal it would be if this got back to the U.S. press, um, the deal was that one afternoon a week, the Air Force would send two Air Force doctors to the province hospital, freeing up one Vietnamese doctor. And by the way, you could have all the penicillin you could need. And so we solved the problem of, of at least the venereal disease problem and, and to some extent, uh, but we're unable to solve the problem of uh, American soldiers crawling under barbed wire to get to prostitutes outside the gate. Wow. Yeah. So, that's... so the, yeah, there were a number of stories that are, are funny like that, that I, it, I hate, I hated to do it, but just for a time they, they we had to trim it down and, um, there's some additional stories about the process of kind of how bureaucratic sort of John's experience with, with the the intelligence bureaucracy and things like that, that just had to be cut for time, but that will be available on DVD and also I'll probably release a few more of those on social media just as a, as a teaser. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was, I was wondering about bonus features and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I, I wanted to ask you a bit about more, John, is and you did mention this a bit in the film, but I'm I'm curious to hear more. Your overall perception and and take on the CIA in general in Vietnam while you were there, and uh, the Phoenix program in particular. What was your your take on this? Well, I really only was there for the beginnings of the effort. To, for the, and it does involve, again, one of these crazy bureaucratic systems where um, the Phoenix program began, in my view, as an effort to coordinate intelligence at the local level. There was a problem involving uh, the sharing of information among the South Vietnamese intelligence agencies. So, for example, in addition to uh, the South Vietnamese Army Intelligence, with whom I worked directly. I also worked with the uh, so-called uh, civilian police, the uh, uh, people who were involved in the day-to-day -day activity of, of police work. They were the ones that were being advised by the Central Intelligence Agency, by agents of that intelligence agency. There are also a number of uh, naval intelligence people that operated along the coast of, of our province with whom we had very little contact. Uh, again, there was a South Vietnamese Navy portion and there was the, uh, the American naval intelligence. Um, so we were, some of us who were in the advising business were called to Saigon for a week long orientation on how to bring about the coordination of these various Vietnamese agencies 
in sharing information? Well, of course, the first question we asked was whether or not the Vietnamese had been ordered to do this, because our experience was that the our colleagues, our counterparts, did nothing unless they got orders through their chain of command. Well, it was explained to us that this had been approached to the uh, President Chu of South Vietnam, but he had declined to actually implement the program. And so we were going to work it from the bottom up. That is, the American advisors were supposed to convince their counterparts to do this. And once we had accomplished it, the Americans would advise the president of Vietnam that it was already in place. Now, this goes to this broader problem which America had in South Vietnam and has, obviously, in the Middle East. How does one improve the behavior of your counterparts without appearing to be the, uh, the patronizing colonial power taking over? Uh, Americans were very uh, afraid to order the Vietnamese to do anything. We had to persuade them in order to, to get in a result. Well, those of us at the local level knew that there was very little chance that our colleagues would uh, set up this system while they didn't have any specific orders to do so. So the origins of the Phoenix program, in my mind, began with this kind of inverted uh, system in which we were going to do something at the local level that hadn't been approved by the higher-ups as yet. Uh, the whole point of that exercise was the identification of the so-called Viet Cong infrastructure. And while there was some idea at the beginning that there would be then some mechanism for, shall we call it, diffusing the role of this infrastructure, and by infrastructure I mean those people that existed pretty much in every hamlet, village, and district who were undercover sympathizers with the Viet Cong, uh, who were their agents in place if and when the time came for a takeover. Um, we found it was clear that the Viet Cong had their own parallel uh, military and political structure that would take place. We knew who the Viet Cong province chief would be, who the district chiefs would be, and that kind of thing. These were people who would be in the hamlets and villages, perhaps becoming the hamlet chief uh, under Viet Cong control. So in the time before I left Vietnam, we were simply in the process of trying to organize this system, trying to get greater cooperation between the police and the military, between the Navy and the police, etc. And none of it had really come about by the time I left. Now, when I, I don't know if I mentioned in the film, but after I left Vietnam, I became an instructor on combat intelligence at the Army Intelligence School. In fact, I wrote the first block of instruction about uh, being an intelligence advisor in Vietnam. Um, and one of the things that that resulted in was my being uh, commissioned to do a couple of things related to outside agencies. 
And the one that's most relevant to this story is that at one point I was uh, called into the commandant's office, the intelligence school, and given a letter that had been written to the commandant from the head of the British intelligence school, uh, military intelligence school. And in it, he was um, criticizing the American effort in Vietnam in part because of this lack of coordination that they had found among the Vietnamese uh, intelligence agencies. And I was supposed to draft a reply to it. And as I did so, I decided to, to take a chance and really vent my, uh, my feelings about some of these things. And among other things, I wrote uh, something to the effect that, that said, well, it's not a surprise that the Vietnamese intelligence agencies don't share information about their agents or intelligence et cetera, with one another. Since the Americans don't share it either, we couldn't get information from the CIA, they, the Navy, or any of the other agencies. Um, well, the, the kind of upshot of this story is that um, having submitted the letter, I was expecting some blowback from the commandant as to this critical tone I had taken about the American intelligence effort. Um, and sure enough, I got a call to report to his office. And he asked me if uh, this was my final draft. And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you realize it's three days late. I said, yes, sir. That I was working on. Well, he says, don't let it happen again. So that was the end of my <laughs> payback. He probably had never even read it, um, but it was late. So that was the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess at least you got the opportunity to vent a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Well, um, one last thing I wanted to ask both of you about is just overall, what do you think are the the big sort of takeaways from the film that you think people would get from watching it and that you hope that people get from watching the film? Well, let me say first, I, I have very limited expectations in, in one sense. Uh, often when I have encountered either Vietnam veterans or people who knew about Vietnam veterans, um, the question is, you know, what what was it really like? Something, you know, along those lines. And what I try to say is, you know, every story pretty much you've ever heard about Vietnam is true. Um, we all had different ways of experiencing that war, some horrifically. I was fortunate to be in an area where uh, there was very little combat. The Viet Cong would come out at night. We would wait until daylight to go see what they had done. Um, there was not a lot of, of infantry-style uh, combat going on. Uh, others were in the middle of major, very difficult and horrendous situations. So my hope is simply that this will be seen as another story, another perspective, another part of what was going on and how some of us young 23-year-olds experienced the war, what we learned or unlearned from it, and uh, with the hope that in the future, people will not 
have to experience it that way again. Yeah, I think I feel I feel the same way John does in terms of that, and and also that I I went into it thinking that um, <clears throat> or with the goal of basically illustrating John's story and hopefully providing the audience with another angle on the war that they have not experienced and that the the audience comes away with appreciation for that angle and and John's story and the the advisor experience in general another piece another bit of of information and experience you know for for them to uh, absorb and that was really it you know those are the basic goals really illustrating John's story and trying to tie it in with the larger war was the main goal and just to just to give the audience a bit more um a bit more a story they hadn't heard before really is the bottom line. Yeah. And it, it would probably be nice if some of the lessons that are there would be learned. And so that we don't keep making similar mistakes over and over and over and over again. But I right. suppose that's probably way too unrealistic to guess that, that's going to happen. What's the, the, the old pessimistic, pessimistic Russian saying, I think the only thing we learn from history is that it doesn't teach us anything. In doing publicity for the film, obviously this recent um, uh, Washington Post Afghanistan papers thing is the most recent history repeats itself. But also we've in doing publicity, we've uh, we've worked with a, a guy, another podcaster who, um, was a former advisor in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he and other, other advisors have said that the nothing has changed really very, or very little has changed. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a military guy. It's not my place to say what the military should or shouldn't do, but it does seem that to be that these things keep happening. And so at least in a small way, the movie can just provide some more information and, and historical you know, an account of this uh, sliver of the war. Sure, absolutely. Well, it's a a fascinating film to watch. Thank you. So I, I want to urge everyone listening to go check it out. It is well worth your time. Very interesting. And I want to thank both of you gentlemen for talking with me today on the Dangerous History Podcast. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, CJ. All right, and I want to once again thank Mike and John for coming on the show and for their time. And once again, I want to urge you to check out the film. It is very, very interesting. Gives you a window into aspects of the Vietnam War that most people just have no idea about. Things that you just won't find anywhere else. The website for the film is agentsunknown.com. Again, link to that and other things in the show notes. So please go check it out and thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return 
is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.